Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. I might be losing my voice, so this will be interesting today. We're trying to gain it back. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Been answering questions for work stuff. Done. <laughs> With a single keystroke. Done forever. <laughs> <laughs> if only it were that easy. How's Lone Star? It was good. It was fine. It was fun. It was uh, pretty chill for the most part. Training went pretty good. I don't know. It was weird. I've never done a training before. And so doing it for the first time, definitely a lot of things to work out. Like I'm sure you've experienced this trying out like new curriculum and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff to probably fix and clean up and just have run smoother. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my God. Everything is going. Everything is loud. <laughs> I think I fixed it all. That was my tea. Tea timer? Yes. But I, overall, I think the training went well. One of the problems was just like way too hard. Like way, way, way too hard. And I kept asking people, I sent it to some friends and I was like, is this way too hard? And they were like, ah, it's probably borderline, maybe. And then I got in there and I was like, no, this was way too hard. So the gentle on-ramp was not so gentle. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know. Yeah, so we're going to rewrite that whole section of it. But otherwise, like, it was super fun. And that, and that part of the day was really exciting. And then the conference was good. I was just, like, exhausted after that. And mm-hmm. so I was, like, sort of only half there for a lot of the rest of the conference. But overall, it was fun. Just hung out with people and had a good time. And It's cool. Yeah. How was um, Code Beam? It was good. I was sick for a lot of it. I didn't catch quite as many talks as I wanted to, but I think our talk went well and people seemed to really like it. I'm still recovering from a cold, so. But it was good. I thought, like, the speaker list was actually pretty good and the speakers were pretty decent and the conference was more diverse than I'd seen it in previous years. Yeah, it seems like they're working on that a lot. Yeah, so that was cool. That was positive. So, yeah, I've never been to Lone Star, so I don't know what that's like. Sounds like it was good. It was good. It was fun. It was fun. What's next on this conference circuit? Uh, the next thing I'm going to is Elixir Conf uh, EU. Okay. And then whatever. I didn't submit to Codebeam Stockholm at all, mostly because I got halfway into it and I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to travel more. That's fair. I mean, Stockholm's beautiful, but yes. Yeah, I would love to go back to Stockholm, but I was just like not not into it. That's fair. Travel is hard, especially when there's a lot. Well, I have stuff I want to build right now. I get in those modes where it's like I've got stuff I want to I want to work on and I'll go in the tank on that kind of stuff for a long while. And I feel like I can't talk about I can't work on it and also prep talks cuz prepping talks takes me like 60 hours. Yes, it takes forever. I don't have time to do both. Not when you have also other responsibilities and you're going to try and sleep sometime. And... Right? Yeah. No, I hear you. It's been rough. How's the little one? You know, he's good. He's little. I mean, he cries and he wakes up at night and stuff like that. But that's mostly to be expected. Uh, That's just what babies are. Overall, he's chill. Like, in terms, as far as babies go, he's an easy baby. That's good. How old is he now? It's like four months. Doing some math on top of uh, top of my head. Yeah, like four or five months. Aww. How are your other kids um, adjusting to? They've mostly adjusted. (laughs) They've mostly adjusted. There's been a couple of regressions here and there. As happens when you have big changes in your family or whatever. Right. So there's been some regressions, but overall, I think they're good. And they're very caring for him. Aww. They try really hard, and sometimes that exuberance gets misplaced or like comes out in sort of negative ways. But overall, they try really hard. Well, that's cool. So that's been nice. Yeah. But 
I also got con like conference sick. So the day I left, I had to wake up at like 4.30 to get to the airport oh, in time. Because no. that was yeah. the only flight I could book through our business flight thingy. So then I was just like sick all day. It didn't feel great. So I didn't drink any coffee. And then I suffered oh. the like... Uh, caffeine, caffeine headache withdrawal. yeah caffeine yeah. withdrawal but then after that i was kind of like my the number of cups of coffee i've been drinking has been slowly creeping up and so it was at about like three which is high for me i try to stay at like one mm-hmm. and so i was sort of in this mode thinking like well i've already gone through the hard part i already went through day one day one's the hardest day so now do i just lean into that and cut cut down on my caffeine intake and so since i've been home i haven't had a cup of coffee yet i've had a tea ah. i've had so there is a there's conceits for the the real world like i've had a cup of tea but that's about it and in terms of orders of magnitude it's like tea is nothing on the caffeine scale compared to a cup of coffee i know i'm having tea this morning too <laughs> it's hard sometimes though you're just like i just want more Right. Yes. But today I feel like I'm having a breakthrough. Like today I feel like I'm I'm okay and I haven't had coffee yet. So that's pretty exciting. Are you excited? At, what is, what's the stuff that you're working on? Can you talk about it yet or not yet? Um, no, I mean, I can talk about it a little bit. It's, it's sort of a grand, well, I'll talk about it in a second. I wanted, so I wanted to hear before we get too far away from this topic, I wanted to talk a little bit about your talk at Codebeam. Oh yeah. Because you were talking about concurrency models, right? Mm-hmm. With Hannah? Yeah. We were really just comparing, looking at the differences between CSP and the actor model and kind of the fact that there's actually a lot of things that are similar between the two if you're comparing to like traditional threaded programming but then like where they differ and how they differ and that going back to the fact that those both languages were built to solve fundamentally different problems which kind of led to a lot of the functionality that we see in each of the languages that we have access to so it's kind of stuff that we talked about that's cool yeah, it was fun. Hannah's done a lot more girl programming than I have. I've done a little bit. But it was interesting to kind of dive in and look at that. And really look at, as we say this a lot, but like thinking about what the language was built for. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like not being limited by those constructs. Hannah was talking about how there's, she implements kind of a gen servery pattern thing in Go all the time for the work that they're doing on the current project they're on. And it seems a little weird. It does feel a little weird, but it's a pattern that she leverages all the time because she needs that like asynchronous behavior no i mean that makes sense i think that's the thing what's funny is i've done a fair amount of go and i end up doing a lot of the same thing you have these workers that you then need to sort of conceptually understand and so you make them look like actors at the end of the day my experience has been that that's an easier conceptual model to understand if you can just treat the thing as single threaded and just then allow the the vm to work it all out then that ends up being a really good pattern yeah, it was interesting. People seem to really enjoy that. There are a lot of people who are... There's a lot of people who don't like Go, apparently. Yeah, Go Go sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was designed to be a systems programming language, right? And, like, I think the thing that is interesting about Go is that it is so... In a, in a good and a bad way, it's so flexible. But if you don't know what you're doing, right? Like, you can really bind yourself into a corner, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the cooperative scheduling aspect of it, where you're like, most of the time it won't happen, but if it's supposed to hit like certain functions to release control of the thing of its process that it's running and it doesn't do that, and you're like, oh, oops. It feels like that's something that shouldn't be so easy to make happen. Yeah, it's got Go is interesting. I mean, for what it is, Go is goes good. I mean, I mean, I don't, I say Go sucks. Like, I don't like writing Go code. I find no joy in writing Go. Just get rid of it. It doesn't bring you joy. Exactly exactly and i have a i have a real real punchy um one-liner on go but i can't say it on this podcast because we don't swear on this podcast oh yeah most okay. most of the time yeah, <laughs> i don't know though it just uh, it never feels like i have the things that i want like it never feels 
like I can express my problems in the way that I want to express them. Mm-hmm. Like I just want to map and reduce. Why can't I not just map and reduce? Right. I feel like it's really hard to map things and to reduce things, and like hard on purpose. Like they made it. They made it hard intentionally. And so it's like that's really frustrating. The the lack of being able to do sort of generic things is really frustrating. Yeah, I don't know. That language is 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 great for what it is. Well, if it's trying, it's trying to be a replacement for C, right? Is it? I guess it that's is. That's what it seems like, right? Like a lot of the syntax and a lot of the stuff is catered towards being really easy for folks that are coming over from C. My take on it for a while has been that Go seems. Oh, this is not interesting. Nobody cares about this. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear my thought on this. But I, I think my take on Go is that it's fast Python. It's like a language you can learn in a week. You know, like everything that you need to learn is there. You'll learn it and you say, okay, cool. There's all the constructs that I need in this language. And then you'll write stuff. And then some stuff will be arbitrarily limited just because of the language. But it doesn't matter because you can learn it in a week. And then you don't have to do anything really at a fundamental level to like tune it and make it go fast. Now you have to learn about a couple things. But otherwise, it, it'll mostly just be fast enough and you can build fast web services. or. Yeah, but I don't know that I would choose Go for web services. Like if I was building web services... I don't know that Go is the thing I would reach for. Yeah. Well, people are building web services in Rust, and that blows my mind. So I don't know. People do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Rust is a whole nother thing. <laughs> Rust is also equally joyless for a bunch of different reasons, for like the opposite reasons. Well, Rust, I think, is harder when you're getting started. Oh, absolutely. I don't think that's negotiable at all. I, I think anyone who would make the argument that Rust is an easier thing to get started with than Go is like... Lying. Yeah, well, just like it is so into their own hype, like that they've lost sight of the real world. <laughs> like, there's no way that anybody would would actually, in good faith, make that claim. That's fair. But tell me about the stuff you're working on, or tell me about or at a high level. Yeah, so I have kind of a grand unified theory thing I'm working on. Um, I don't know. I none of it is super original. It's just a lot of ideas that I'm pulling from. Other. Is anything ever original? No, not really. Every now and then, though, you, you tap into something. But this is none of this is original. I don't actually have original ideas. I just, I only steal things. <laughs> That's what the best do, right? There's so many quotes about. Yeah. Essentially, it's it's a way to do specification and contracts, like doing design by contract inside of Elixir, um, but also with, that's part of it, inside of Elixir and also across services. Say more about that when you say design by contract. So design by contract is this, um, I'm trying to remember, it, it's, I'm trying to remember when it was created. I don't, I don't remember uh, when it was kind of sort of coined, I guess. The idea is that you can take a function and you can specify the inputs similar to how you would specify the inputs with like a type system. Like, hey, this, this function is going to take three integers and return a string. With design by contract, you actually get um, runtime power. So you can actually start to say things like this function is going to take three integers all between the values of zero and 255. And then it's going to return a string. And the output of that string is going to be uh, a hash and then six characters all and all characters have to be either like A through F. And like that would be how you would specify the inputs and outputs and like design by contract. And there's other ways that you could do that, right? There's There's sort of deeper things that you could start to say about about your data but it allows you to sort of fully specify like it allows you well not fully well uh, full specification is like a, a real term that i shouldn't throw around it allows you to better specify a lot of like the shape of your data coming in out of your functions and so for instance in that example 
you know, if we're building an RGB to hex converter, which is my sort of go-to example for this stuff, we could actually fundamentally say, here's all the things that we that we care about in this function. Here's the shape of it. Uh, and then you can like property-based test that stuff or generative test that stuff and then actually see that it holds. Uh, and this is what's used in like really uh, mission critical kind of stuff. Like this is used in um, like aerospace, like really heavily. It's used in stuff that like, that can't really fail. Um, because as it turns out, types aren't really enough uh, for specifying behavior. Mm -hmm. they, they can kind of get close in certain ways and far in others. And so this allows you to actually sort of start to say like deeper things. Uh, and there's not really a, a type system right now that can do this stuff. Although, you know, dependent types are definitely a thing. And session types are a thing. Like, the, you know, people are working on building type systems that can do closer to this but you know this is this is pretty exciting right now and it's a thing that's been around for a really really long time and other languages have uh, more have stronger or weaker abilities to support this stuff like you can do this in c with annotations not annotations but with like macros that then get removed at compile time uh, so when you do when you build for like deployment you don't have these checks in place anymore you can, and that's a that's a thing that happens i mean we actually get really close to this in Elixir because we have guards. Are you okay? <clears throat> yeah, I'm good. I'm just like losing my voice a little bit. Okay. Right. <laughs> so don't worry. Okay. And it might go through phases of me being like, what? <laughs> it's really great for podcasts. So you were saying. Uh, yeah. So so in Elixir, we actually kind of have this already with guards. Because in guards, you can kind of start to share. You, you could actually provide that precondition for your RGB to hex converter with guards. Like you could actually say, guards actually do give you enough to be able to, to say that which is pretty cool. But we don't have any way to verify the output right now. We don't have any way to say, like, ensure that the output always looks like this or a post condition. Um, and so I'm working on a, on a way to be able to specify that, that kind of stuff. That is That plays well with the rest of, like, the ecosystem and also plays well with the ability to take input from the outside world and validate that it still is in the shape that you care about and stuff like that. And we built, I built a prototype of this at um, Bleacher Report that we use oh, for cool. all of our uh, Kafka consumers. Um, and it's actually specifically around validating like external data coming into the system. And so it's been pretty, it's been pretty nice. It's, it's like, because we can actually spit out like exactly what's wrong with data as it changes or updates or breaks or whatever. Uh, and it's designed to allow for sort of services to be able to communicate with each other uh, and grow their APIs over time without needing to coordinate deployment and to coordinate, you know, changes and stuff like that, which is a big deal. And so uh, it gets you closer than something like, let's say like protobuf does. For those who don't know what protobuf is, can you say what that is? Well, it's, it's two things. Like it's a way to specify um, uh, different like payloads or service definitions. Uh, and it also is a binary um, encoding format. So you can say like, I have, you know, uh, some record that has a name, which is a string and an age, which is an integer. And then it, it both is a way to specify that and also encode that in a binary way that you can then send over the wire. Um, and you said this was part of like a larger vision, this project? I'm working on a bunch of different components that build up all this stuff. So we have mm -hmm. the ability to sort of specify whatever data we want moving in and out of the system and through our different functions. So I, I actually think that this is kind of, I, one of my fundamental premises is that I actually think this is closer to what you want than a real, than like a standard type system. This is closer to what I want. 
this is a lot closer to what I want because at the end of the day, like there's no type system in the world that can tell me that, that an operation is commutative. Like that doesn't exist. But actually what I care about a lot is that operations are commutative. Right. And right. so if I can start to specify stuff like that, then that's like much more interesting to me. That makes sense. If I can specify data moving in and out of my system and through all my functions, uh, there is benefit to that. And you know, I want to take advantage of it. But I want to be able to do that in an ad hoc, arbitrary way where I can choose what I care about adding that sort of ability to. So gradual types and stuff like that get you closer to being able to arbitrarily choose the things that you more care about. But they tend to sort of permeate throughout the rest of your system you know, in a kind of a weird way. And you kind of need to do a lot of it in order to get like the majority benefits from it. So I want to be able to drop in anywhere and say, this function really matters. I want to make sure that it's all that the specification for this like is enforced. And then I can do that in an ad hoc way. And I get, I can say more interesting things about my data than I can with types. That's really interesting. So I'm working on all of that. And then a bunch of tooling to go along with all of that. Was this inspired by the work you were doing it was necessitated by the stuff you guys were doing at Bleacher Report, or is this something you've been thinking about for a long time? It's a combination of the two. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh, and then, like I said, we built this prototype for all of our Kafka stuff. And it's it's worked really well at being able to narrow down like the discrepancies in the data that we thought we were getting versus what upstream things were actually sending us. And so when we rolled this out, we rolled this out without actually changing the original flow of how data got like decoded. So we just run both flows at the same time, but we always pass through the the old one, the existing flow. And just to see like what was happening, just to compare our specification versus what the real world was. And, and like all of them were wrong because like the upstream stuff, it just started sending us random stuff or like it wasn't fully specified in any kind of way. There was no contract there. So like stuff we thought was integers were strings and stuff like that. And are you building a separate testing how, how are you going to do testing around this stuff? Are you going to use like property-based testing or? Yeah, so that, that, that part's interesting. Still somewhat like TBD. And because the problem is, is like we want to, I want to build it in to like add prop the property-based generation for this stuff into the library that people can then download. But that means I can't use proper because proper is GPL licensed. And at that that's point, right, right. you would you would also have to be GPL licensed. And if I want the bits of this to be used sort of at runtime inside of people's real code. Yeah, you can't do that. Then I can't do that. So we're, we'll see. Because I also want to be able to do some more, some other interesting things. And with generation of data and that sort of stuff. And with property-based testing and like, like being able to do stateful testing is really important to me. Right. Totally. So we'll see. Um, well, that's exciting. It sounds like a lot of work, though. Are you doing this by yourself? Yeah, it's not a ton, a ton of work. Mostly doing it by myself. Yeah. Once, once more is out there, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll probably start soliciting more like feedback. Like once I have a better, once I have a better sense of like what I'm, where I'm going with it all, I'll probably solicit better, more feedback. Are you still doing any of the work on your raft stuff? I think I've asked you this. Before. Uh, yeah, yeah, bits and pieces. I'm actually doing all this distributed training stuff. Got me really excited to go back and keep fin and finish up some of that stuff. Are you, you guys are giving the distributed training course again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're doing that same training at um, Elixir Conf EU, and then we'll probably submit it to Elixir Conf, just because it seems like it's gone well. I want to take it, so you should do that because I'm not going to Elixir Conf EU. Yeah, well, we'll sum we'll re we'll submit it for sure to Elixir Conf. Um, and, and hopefully there'll be some interest in it still by that point. Were there any interesting topics or talks at ElixirConf, or not at ElixirConf, at Lone Star that are worth talking about? I think everybody got really excited. I'm going to mispronounce it, but like it's a talk about a tool called Heska. 
Uh-huh. And it's essentially a way to compile certain, well, I don't know, essentially, it's like, it's it's a it is a way to take certain functions and compile them down into like LLVM bytecode or something like that, or like to run on to, to basically it's like it highly optimizes certain functions to run on different CPU architectures or like GPUs, and they're getting crazy speed increases doing that, like bonkers. Let me find it, but like they're you know so they went so. The example they gave is like, if you use enum, enum is slower basically all the time. Enum is slower than doing recursion yourself mm-hmm. um, because there's overhead and in going into enum for a bunch of reasons. But yeah, but there's but there's overhead there. And most of the time it's not really noticeable. But, um, you know, if you're trying to optimize stuff, then then that's a thing. Right. If performance is a thing, then it's important. Yeah, yeah. and And again, it's like, if performance is a thing is like if performance if like you have to eke out every just millisecond of time you know then 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 that's this is where you start doing stuff like that they were he was showing off like he and his team have built essentially just like a macro that you then wrap around whatever function you want and it compiles it into like optimized bytecode that that then is just bonkers fast and so he was that's getting cool. like like orders of magnitude speed increases just by optimizing some of these functions. Yeah, 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 yeah. It like, like, like highly, highly optimized. That's really cool. Let me find it. Interesting. What necessitated that for them? Did he talk about that? I actually don't know how they're just doing this. Like, I don't know how he's just going for it. But they're at like a data company, I, I think. So they probably need really fast. I'll post the talk. Yeah. It's really good. We'll though. share it in the show notes. Okay. And the talk is very funny. The talk is very very funny. Well, good speakers are hard to hard to find. Tell me more about your. We didn't. We talked about my talk, but tell me more about your training. Is it for folks that are getting into distributed stuff or? Yeah, I think the target audience is is definitely for people who are people who are familiar with Elixir, but who don't know a ton about you know distribution and want to start maybe playing around with some of that stuff. Or introduce it at work, or they have a reason that they need to to, to do distribution for some reason. Uh, so it's a talk kind of for those people, I would say. And how did you go about thinking about? Because distribution is not easy, right? And it's a, I mean, like it's a hard thing to introduce to folks. So without giving too much away, because people want to go to your workshop, but like, how did you go about introducing the the concept? So the idea for me, I don't know. This was actually really tricky. You don't want to start like throwing a bunch of terms at people. And you don't want to start throwing a bunch of concepts at people immediately because that's not fun. That's not fun to sit through. And you like you're paying to be able to go and build this stuff. And so it's it's tough to open with, you know, 10 minutes of here's why you don't actually want to do this. Here's all the reasons why this sucks (laughs) and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's not fun for anybody. But so you have to kind of I felt like but I did feel sort of compelled and, and Ben and I both felt really strongly that we did want to say to folks, you know, this is, this is tricky. This is hard. There's, there's a lot to learn here and there's a lot of ways you can kind of hurt yourself. And so most of the training, it builds up from connecting nodes together and sharing computations across nodes and sending messages across nodes and all that. It builds up from that really quickly to mostly talk about error handling. You know, how do we build solutions that survive these kinds of failures? And then we actually, 
uh, for all the different exercises. There's four different exercises we go through. And for every exercise, we introduce more and more failures. And we actually have a, a set of tools that can segment nodes and, and break stuff. Um, so that when you're going through the, that, that training, you're learning you know, how to handle when workers die or when nodes go offline or whatever. All the parts that are hard, right? When your system is not working. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if you're going to do this in real life, you're going to have to solve those problems anyway. And so, and you're going to want tools to solve them anyway. So we kind of introduce a lot of these tools and we introduce ways to combat this stuff and ways to think about these problems. We use a lot of the stuff that's built in to, to actually solve this stuff and point out a lot that, you know, hey, you know, there's also these other... There's these other bits that you can reach for that are off the shelf that already handle some of these problems. And that way people know, but that way people know like what it is they're looking for and why. You said like you don't, you don't want to start off with 10 minutes of like, this is hard and this is why. I don't know. I think people will probably want to know that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we definitely introduce that. We don't shy away from the fact that, I mean, we, we straight up say to people, you know, you want to use a database still. You want to, you know, you want to store your canonical state somewhere safe, stuff like that. What was the hardest part of teaching this stuff? Honestly, the hardest part was coming up with compelling examples. The hardest part was coming up with with examples that were meaningful that you could really dig into without... Uh, so, you, so you didn't need to spend a bunch of time wrapping your head around the problem and absorbing the problem itself because the problem would be obvious. And then you could spend the majority of your time actually solving the, the underlying problem of distribution. And what was tripping people up the most that you saw? I don't know if there was any one specific thing. I think most people ended up making it through the day, but there's a lot of like, there's a lot of the stuff that gets most people that I that I was detecting is just the stuff that's hard about. Distributed systems. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like race conditions. You know, somebody was like, I reconnect this box. And even this one got me. And I sat there and had to look at it for a bit. They're like, I reconnect the box and then I do some stuff and I do some stuff. And for some reason, I'm not seeing, it's like the answer is not working itself out. It was very, very surprising. And it took us a long time to sit there and figure out, oh, it's because when you connect, you're not waiting until this other thing happens and there's a race condition between these two operations. Like, you know, that was tricky. And it's tricky even for me now. Uh, And that kind of stuff is what tripped up a lot of people, I think. But I mean, that's the, but that's the nature of it. That's the part that, that's, that, that's why this is hard. Well, and I would imagine like this kind of workshop is really useful because it's something like distribution. It's just a hard thing to get started with if you don't know what you're doing. There's not a lot of like, I mean, I'm I'm sure there are, but like, especially if you're working with like live systems and production, you're trying to introduce some of the stuff, like trying to make sure you have like monitoring in place that actually works. And all of that sounds like a lot of overhead if you're, especially if you're new to it. Yeah. Monitoring is key. And I mean, the other thing is you probably just don't need this. Like you probably really don't need this. You can go a really, really long way without it. So unless your problem really necessitates it and you need to build it with, and you need to solve that specific problem, then you may just not need to do this at all. (laughs) And, and would you tell people that? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We were like, you can go a really long way before you, before you need to do this. And how, did you give any, are there any, I know we hate, like, we've talked on the show a lot about, like, rules or whatever, like, guidelines or for things, but do you you give people any, like, thoughts around when they might start thinking about when they need it? Uh, I think if you, if your problem needs really low latencies, 
that's that's the most obvious case and most of the time that's the um that's the thing that that's the thing that i see people using distribution for is to get much much lower latencies well i should say that's the thing that i see people using distribution for if they have if they're not solving a problem that they created for themselves because what ends up happening is that people people do this thing where they build their apps using gen servers the gen server is what stores state in the database and but the, they treat the gen server as the database for the most part and then like saving state is like an afterthought there's a thing that happens after the fact and when you do that then you necessitate the you, you force yourself to start thinking about distribution because now you have this like single process id thing like you have a single process in your system that's supposed to manage an entity and if anybody else is managing that entity like now you're back in race condition land right so what ends up happening is people back themselves into this corner where then they go, oh, I need distribution. I need to connect my nodes together so that they can all find out about the one process. Except then like all bets are off because the one process is not a real thing because Segfault, the <laughs> network, like net splits right. happen, problems right. happen, whatever. Yeah, that's kind of where a lot of people I think end up and they, and they push themselves into that. I think, uh, and that's you know unfortunate because that's kind of a problem that people make for themselves. I think if you need to... If you don't have that problem, but you do want really low latencies, distribution can start to make sense uh, because you can start to keep more data inside the beam itself as long as it's ephemeral and just put it in caches and those sorts of things and then distribute writes and re, uh, reads and writes across the cluster as it makes sense to. Uh, and that'll typically be lower latency and you'll get more out of your boxes by doing that. Because like if you're on Amazon and you're running some larger like compute instances or something like that, then you're sitting there wasting a bunch of the resources of that box. So at that point, it can start to make sense. That makes sense. To bring data inside of the inside the cluster as long as it's, you know, ephemeral. Mm-hmm. And then you can do replication or whatever to start to send that data around to the different nodes inside of your system. Mm-hmm. What do you think is still the hardest part for you when dealing with, because you've been doing this for a little while, especially the step around distribution, but like what still remains really hard? It's a good question. All these problems go in layers and there's layered solutions that you have to start coming up with in order to, to you know, every new thing that you introduce causes a problem. <laughs> like every right. new totally. every new thing you add it's just a it's an ouroboros of problems the problem so you'll do something like okay i need to do replication right because i want to get lower latency so i start to do replication and if your working set of data is small enough you can actually you might be able to get away with something silly like replicate the entire like entire state space to all nodes that's expensive uh and costly but maybe it's maybe it's fine if you know you only need to keep a couple hundred records in an ETS ta- in an ETS table, yeah, you might be able to get away with like full replicate, and they don't change that often. Then yeah, you might be able to get away with full replication of the state. Uh, in which case, you should do that because that's it's a it's a it's the naivest way possible to solve that problem, and you should always do the naive thing if it works. You should do the simplest thing that works. But the minute that that doesn't work, well, now you enter into this problem. So let's say that you need you need to store a lot more state inside the cluster. Well, now how do you distribute that state across the cluster? You can use something like consistent hashing to say, okay, this node always gets keys, you know, A through N, and then M through Z goes to this other node over here. Like you can just hash the key of the of the state and then go over there, and that's where it always gets updated, and that's where you always look it up. But when you do that, invariably what you'll end up with is like hot nodes and well you also have to solve the problem of 
you, you have to have some consistent way to look up all your nodes. So you need to keep track of the actual canonical set of nodes. So you need a consistent store somewhere to be able to do that if you're going to use just consistent hashing. And then the other thing is like you'll end up with a hot node somewhere where one node runs way hotter than everybody else in the cluster because it happens to have, you know, for our example, right, Bleacher Report, it's like that one has NFL on it and and no one else does. And so everybody is hitting that one box. Like that one box gets like way overused. So then the next layer of things that you start to add is like distributed hash tables. And distributed hash tables allow you to on the fly, like dynamically readjust where keys should go. What you end up doing is saying like, okay, this box is hot. So shuffle all the other, the remaining nodes to all, you know, shuffle the remaining key spaces to all the other nodes um, so that we can like dynamically reallocate uh, keys to other nodes. So nothing ends up over here. And so even though this node is running hot, everything else is, it's, it's essentially only handling NFL. You have an NFL box and then you have an everything else box. And it does that automatically. Like it just magically figures that out, right? That would be the ideal system. But then you need to look up your distributed hash tables. And so then you go back to consistent hashing again. You're like, okay, so I'm going to consistently hash how does how the distributed hash tables partitions end up on any of these given nodes. And then I need to, you know, it's like, it's like every problem is more problems. One of the things that you end up doing is figuring out when to like pull the ripcord and, you know, go pull, like not reinvent a lot of these tools and go, you know, start using like an off the shelf thing like React KV or React Core or Erlings or something like that. Like you go get an off the shelf thing that can solve these problems because you may not want to actually solve every single one of these things. Like you may not, it may not be in the best interest of your business to do that um, and to, and to re-implement a bunch of these tools. And so figuring out like how to get out, <laughs> figuring out how to get yourself out of the problem before you go too deep is a big part of it. That makes sense. Are you guys using any of the off-the-shelf tools at Bleacher Report, or are you building your own stuff? Not currently. We're not too deep into the in, into any of these things, specific things yet. And for a lot of what we're doing, naive stuff is still working fine. Um, no one's proved that it won't work yet. And so when somebody proves that it won't work is when we'll do the not naive thing. But currently, like, I mean, most a lot of our stuff is just really, really naive. And it turns out that the beam will support that as well as anything else. And you don't need to overthink it. And that's awesome. Yeah. It's been amazing because of that, I think. And so we're only now entering into this phase where we're like, we want to get more out of the boxes that we have. Uh, and we're, and we're starting to make some different trade-offs, but I mean, we're just now doing that. You can go a really long way without ever doing that. <laughs> Do you feel like when people are first jumping into doing distribution stuff that that tends to get overlooked the naive solution? I think it's less fun. It's less fun to, to build your Phoenix app the same way that you built your Rails app. Uh, and you want to be able to utilize these these tools. But invariably, when you start doing stateful things inside of your, your applications or services, like you now have problems to solve. So you have to think about how you're going to manage it and what you're going to do with it. Um, but at the end of the day, my, my kind of take is that you probably do just want to build your Phoenix app the same way you built your Rails app. Like you probably just want to build controllers that do stateless database operations and then like return things and use processes sparingly for different ephemeral stores for stuff. Like you probably can get a long way down the line without needing a bunch of nonsense. And and that's what I encourage people to do, which is kind of sacrilege or heresy or whatever. I was going to say, I mean, when you say that out loud, people are probably like, what? Yeah, people get mad at me about this kind of stuff, but I really do think that you are probably fine. <laughs> 
you were probably just fine, you know, building things in a stateless way. And you probably should continue doing it that way unless there's a like really, really good reason for you to not do it that way. And even then, if you're going to use processes and gen servers and state everywhere and all that kind of stuff, know what you're doing with it. And That's really, a different thing. <laughs> real, yeah. And well, and really, but really think about the trade-offs you're making because if not, you're going to get into a real bad position. But how can you think about that if you don't fully understand? You know what I mean? Like if you're new to it, which I guess is why you're saying go out as far as you can without getting into that because it's sometimes hard to know the trade-offs that you're making. Yeah, yeah. Don't basically don't make the trade-off at all until you're until you're until you're ready to to make that trade-off. And the way you don't make it at all is you just do everything statelessly. That actually will get you a really, really, really long way. A lot longer than anybody thinks or gives it credit for. That's fair. And I think it's interesting that sometimes as it's an important thing to keep in mind, right? Sometimes it's easy to get distracted by the thing that sounds interesting or new or will be helpful rather than being like, what's the simplest, easiest way that I could do this Mm -hmm. that is aligned with what the business need? Well, and it's less fun. It's It's less fun to do it that way. And when you come to Elixir, the very first thing anybody tells you is like, learn OTP before you learn all this other stuff. And then you learn all these cool process things. And then you're like, okay, sweet. Now I'm going to build my service or my application. And you, and then you're like, how do I use my process things? Those were cool. That was why I liked Elixir was those cool process things. I want my cool process things. <laughs> you're like, I don't want to build another Rails app. No, exactly. So then you, you like go, go hard on the, on the processes. And then you're like, oh no, what have I done? That sounds about right. Yeah, well, we, we have a short attention spans, right? We all want the new shiny, the new shiny things. Well, and especially if you get into this stuff and you start to see like, oh, I could see how there's benefit here. You want to use it in all the places because you want to gain those benefits. But understanding when, right? That you don't actually need them right away, which I think is like, part. Of, I wonder if this is part of the reason when people start looking at the language initially, right? You don't, you can go a long way without using any of those things that sound rad. A really long way. I'm here to tell you, you can go a really, really long way without needing those things. You just don't need, in fact, I would say like, I think most of the constructs that people think they need are not real things. Like you don't, you need so much less. You, you just need so much less stuff to build a service that scales and that people like than you think you do. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, I think if you know what you're doing, I would love to talk more. I have to go in a couple of minutes, but I would love to talk more maybe on a different episode about as you, how your experiences in actually building some of these things and in reality, some of the trade-offs you all have had to make and like how you're thinking about some of these problems. Because I think it's hard to know how to think about them until you get into them and until you have real experience actually doing those things. And I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective since you've actually done them. Um, and I think it'd be interesting for people to hear that, especially if they're new to getting into this stuff. Anyway, that's a thought. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun to discuss. Uh, should we thank any of our Patreon members? Yeah, let me pull it up. And also, I uh, wanted to give a quick shout out to, to not shout out, but I wanted to plug Elixir Confi U. Oh, yeah. Again. Uh, it's going to be a really fun conference. There's going to be a whole bunch of great speakers there and uh, all kinds of interesting stuff going on. So you should check it out, Elixir Confi U. It's in Prague. It's in Prague, which I've heard is beautiful. It's in Prague when? It's in Prague in 8th and 9th of April with training on the 10th. Oh, that's a lovely time to be in Prague. I hope so. I've never been in Prague before. And go to the training because it'll be really good. It's sold out. You can't come to, you can, you're either already coming to my training or hopefully we'll do it again some other time. (laughs) 
That's awesome. But there are other trainings. You can go to other trainings if you want to. There'll be other excellent trainings. And Prague is awesome. I would love to have, I can't go this year, but I would love to go to Prague sometime not in the winter. I'm always there in the winter and it's lovely, but Mm -hmm. it's freezing. So it'd be nice to be there when it's not freezing. Yeah, should we we thank a couple of our Patreon folks? It's been run. Yeah, new folks. Is there an easy way to see that? Uh, Since we've last recorded, I think we've had two new, uh, two new patrons have joined. So thank you, Martin M., friend of the show, and thank you, Ryan friend of the show for giving us some money we appreciate that it helps keep everything running (laughs) yeah thank you cool this was fun yeah as always as always i'll talk to you soon later that